Let's Talk Native is produced at the LTN Studios on the Cattaraugus territory of the Seneca Nation. We break all the rules for Native media by peeling back the layers of assimilation and indoctrination. We may step on a few toes through our examination of culture, art, politics, history, and identity. But the real goal here is to bring our people together by breaking down what separates us. So, welcome to Let's Talk Native with John Kane. Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Native. I am John Kane, and this is really our first show produced here in the new year. Um, and I got to say that I don't do New Year's resolutions. It's just not what I do. <laughs> but I, as far as this program goes, as far as Let's Talk Native is concerned, I do have goals. I do have strategies um, going forward. And in, in this year in particular, I do have a specific goal. I, I do want to say that I will continue my work on, uh, on school mascots and other identity challenges and battles that we have. Um, things are never over until they're over, I guess. And, and we know that there are plenty of schools that, that we have worked with that have retired native mascots, some of which are fighting like hell to bring them back, including my old uh, high school in Cambridge, New York, and we'll, we'll see how that plays out. But I have something very, very specific that I, I want to address. And throughout this year, I will be pushing very hard on the residential school issue. With Canada's Truth and Reconciliation <laughs> Process, Commission, whatever you want to call it, commitment, being exposed for the farce that it really is, especially with almost weekly revelations on the cover-ups of dead children buried in mass and unmarked graves, it is inevitable that the U.S. is going to be called out on this in a big way. After all, Canada learned the residential school process. They adopted the policy based on the U.S. model. I mean, it's important to, to again, reiterate that these residential schools in the U.S. And, and in Canada, for that matter, existed for over 100 years, 100 years of, of this, this specific genocidal strategy. But I, I, I guess in, in, in mentioning this, the challenge here is not to let the genocide against entire pop, the entire indigenous population, I'm, and I mean as diverse as we are, Native people were lumped in together by this policy. Native children were lumped in together by this policy. And it is important that the genocide committed against us through this policy does not become obscured by the, the horrific individual murders, atrocities, you know, rapes, you know, abuse, neglect that were committed against children i mean and we it, it, it's one of these things that from a from a timing standpoint it's awkward because we call them our children but in this generation this these were our grandparents that experienced this our great grandparents and, and in some cases our parents and it was their peers it were it, it were it, it 
would, would have been our aunts and our and our and our uncles and our great uncles and grand and all. It would have been the previous generation. So even as we're talking about these atrocities that took place against children, we are talking about the children that existed before us. So it's 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 almost anachronistic in a, in a way. And as horrific as these crimes against the individuals were, we must never forget that there was a strategy behind the atrocities. Residential schools, in many ways, were more dehumanizing than the doctrine of Christian discovery, which, which essentially came with Columbus and, and, and others to the Western Hemisphere and used this church doctrine as the means to dismiss us as human beings to take land, to, you know, subject Native people and, and others to, uh, to slavery. I mean, there's no question that the doctrine of Christian discovery was, was dehumanizing. There, there, is, there is, is no question about that. But what took place, you know, centuries after this barbaric concept of the doctrine of Christian discovery would would enter our lands, there, there would be a hundred more years of a genocide that focused on our children. I mean, children are dehumanized by adults anyway, I mean, in, just in general. But Native children were literally targeted to have what defined them killed. I mean, it was kill the Indian, save the man. That was the policy. And by kill the Indian, save the man, they meant kill enough of that child that the child will no longer exist as a native person. I mean, it's, there is no way to, I mean, there's, there's no way, way to address this other than to label it genocide. But we still need to look at what the individuals went through. So when we when we look at why this or look at the atrocities that were committed, we have to ask why. What was the goal? And was the goal achieved? Beyond the, the commission of this genocide, did the genocide achieve its goal? And so what does reconciliation look like? Are we to forgive? Are we to accept some sort of settlement for the genocide? So th this is this is part of the challenge. And so let me, I guess, part of the whole thing is is to once again, and I know that I've done this on the program many times. Let me explain, and I'm going to give you the the international definition of genocide, and it includes killing members of the group causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group.
I mean, it's almost like this definition of genocide was the playbook for residential schools. So the challenge here, again, is to, is to look at, yes, the individual atrocities that were committed. And, and I don't know how you reconcile. I mean, I don't know how you reconcile murder. I don't know how you recognize the level of deaths that we will, at some point, these, these numbers will become more into focus. Right now, I, by some estimations, there's numbers in the 7,000 to 8,000 um, range of, of children that are buried at these residential schools. And we know that number is, uh, is, is going to increase dramatically. Most of that is all on the Canadian side. That's not even looking at the United States. The United States had many, many more residential schools than the Canadian side did. And of course, I would be remiss if I didn't remind people that these residential schools were indoctrination of, of Christian values. They were run by churches. Part of the whole goal here was to obliterate language and culture and, uh, and whatever spirituality, whatever custom and culture that these children had, and to impose. I mean, this is you know essentially before the word genocide was, was even coined, the, the, the word was called denationalization. And denationalization at the time meant the stripping away of national character of a people and then the imposition of another nation's character upon them. I mean, that's literally what, what happens when you talk about this idea of uh, imposing Christianity upon these children. So, I mean, I, I want to, again, <laughs> even though I'm suggesting that this hundred years of residential schools in many ways was more dehumanizing than the doctrine of Christian discovery. There's a Christian connection between both, and, and, and there's no, no denying that. But let's, let's, for just a second, let's talk about the word reconciliation. Because this, was, this has become the, the mantra, right? Truth and reconciliation. That's what Canada claimed they were doing with their, with their uh, five or six year process. Truth and reconciliation, that's what they said. Well, what does reconciliation mean? Well, the definition of reconciliation essentially says it is the process of the restoration of friendly uh, relations. Well, you have to have some sort of friendly relations. And when you say friendly, there has to be some equity in that relationship. And if we've never had it, and if we still don't have it as a people, then there is no reconciliation in terms of restoring friendly relations. I mean, there was, there was never friendly relations. The other, one of the other definitions is the idea of taking two ideas or concepts or, or sets of facts and trying to establish that they both can be true at the same time. And, you know, that they don't necessarily have to conflict with each other. Well, of course, that's, a, that's an impossible proposition when you're talking about reconciling murder and death and genocide. So you, you can't reconcile it. So then we come to what is considered um, more of a financial um, or a, an accounting uh, definition of reconciliation, which basically means balancing the books. So how do you balance the books? Well, there, I, I think there is some merit to looking at this thing from almost an accounting standpoint. But in order to do it, you have to have a proper accounting. You have to have the, the truth, right? You have to have this ledger that says this is what happened. This this is what the goal was, and, and you know these these are the deaths. But you know what? 
this is where I really strongly believe we have to put a stronger emphasis, or not a stronger, but, but an equally strong emphasis on the genocide committed against a people um, and the, the crimes committed against individuals. I think every accounting of murder, abuse, rape, uh, sterilization, physical, you know, mental uh, abuse. That, that the, I, I think any every account should be established. It, it should be written down. We should try to account for it all. And when we talk about, you know, this idea of compensating you know, families, individuals, survivors, the um, the heirs to to some of the, the those who didn't survive. That's something that you can do based on these individual accounts. But there is another issue here, and, and I can't, this I can't escape, and that there was a reason that these children were, were tortured in this way. And there was a strategy, and that strategy was to diminish us as a people. If not, completely eliminate us. Now, and keep, keep in mind, the definition of genocide always says in whole or in part. So whether a genocide is totally successful at eliminating a people doesn't, or not, doesn't determine whether, whether it was genocide or not, even if it was unsuccessful. And that's part of the debate that we need to have. So when we talk about reconciliation, when we talk about building that ledger, we have to talk about what happened to us as a people or as peoples during the 100 years. What happened to our population? Did our population increase? Well, certainly not. Did our land holdings, uh, were they sustained? No, they weren't. Our land holdings were diminished significantly. And, and again, keep in mind, the goal of this thing was to kill the Indian, save the man. So the entire goal of this, the whole policy and practice and strategy of this was to diminish our identity. To eliminate our, to kill our identity. I mean, let's let's use their words: kill our identity. So, we lose population, we lose land, and we lose autonomy. We lose our identity. And and we can have the debate on how much loss there was there, but there's no question that there was loss there. And and look, it is real easy from an accounting standpoint to build that ledger on how much land was lost. We can, we can actually build a ledger on how much our population decreased on our lands. We, it, it might be a little, little less empirical to determine how much our identity was, uh, was diminished. But let's be clear. Both the Indian Act of Canada and the, the IRA, the Indian Reorganization Act of the United States, they were all geared towards diminishing who we were, about redefining who we were. And, and how could you do that? Well, one of the ways that you do that is, is you spend 100 years stealing our children, targeting our children. Because, look, once you, once you stripped away things like language, which at its core, language is 
such an essential part of our identity. You know, it's funny, I'm gonna, I'm gonna digress as I always do a little bit here. These, this policy was so successful that for many native people coming in, in the 40s and the 50s, and of course I mean the 1940s and 1950s and 60s, we had lost so much of our identity that we were grabbing our identity from Hollywood. I mean, even the Haudenosaunee, we were wearing Plains Indian headdresses. And, and if you don't believe me, look for the pictures of the Six Nations going to Washington to, uh, to declare war against the Axis powers in World War II. Look at how they're dressed. I mean, and look at the most, some of the most famous Native people, uh, I mean, that, of, that, of that time, coming through the 50s and 60s. We weren't wearing gustoas. You didn't see the, the antlers on, uh, on our chiefs as they were posing for pictures. No, you didn't. We, were, we had lost our own identity so much that we looked to what white people were, how they were defining us. Now, fortunately, we hadn't completely lost the language. There were people who, who were always able to maintain a certain level of that. And it's through the language that we were able to, to untangle ourselves from these false identities that, that we had began to adopt and, and understood things like, like rather than the word chief, we, were, we, we understood that we had Rodionesu. We understood we had words that meant something different than the way a word chief or headdress or, or whatever else was going to be defined. But the idea of, of protecting uh, and continuing, and I hate to even use the word preserving our language, but the idea of that was, was so, it was so taboo that it had to go underground. My father's generation, uh, their first language was Mohawk, Gonyogeha. But even that generation, my father's generation, and I mean all the aunts, all the uncles, they never taught my generation I mean, they all spoke to each other in the language, but none of them spoke to us in the language, my generation. There was a conscious decision, and that's born out of this residential school issue, this idea of stripping identity away. So one of the things that, that I'm really going to push as hard as I can this year is to get as many, not just grassroots people, but, but even you know, some of the leadership, some of these councils, whether they're traditional or band council or whatever else, I want them to, to launch investigations. If they have resources, you know, if they have a cultural you know, resource guy or you know, a museum or an archivist or, or whatever they have, that they, they initiate an effort to understand what happened during that, that 100 years of residential schools. Now, keep in mind, not all of these residential schools, either on the Canadian or the U.S. side, were part of the federal policy. Here, I'm speaking to you from, from Seneca territory. Seneca's, the residential school here was Thomas Indian School, which was really started as um, a, more of a, an orphanage or a church organization that, that didn't rely necessarily on the state, but ultimately became um, a, a state-run institution. Now... It's important that, that we understand this. 
because I don't want Thomas Indian School to be regarded any different than Carlisle Indian School in Pennsylvania or any of the other schools that, that, that are going to be scrutinized heavily. And I say beginning this year, but, but, but going forward here. So even the Seneca Nation, although the, the Thomas Indian School was a state school, can still assess the damage that, that this policy, whether it, it involves state schools or, or federal schools, uh, what, how much it, it inflicted upon them. And of course, there, there was a relationship between Thomas Indian School and some of the federal schools. There were plenty of native people from, uh, from this territory and from other territories that were sent to other territories. So whether they were provincial, state, federal, I mean, there were native people who went to Carlisle Indian School from, the, from here. So there has to be an assessment on how much the schools and the, the policy of the, the Indian boarding schools or Indian residential schools had on population in terms of sheer numbers, on how much we were a part of our communities, and how much our identities were diminished. Because I don't even like the word reconciliation. And, and to the extent that, that it may or may not be used going forward, then I say let's use the accounting definition where we build the ledger. And let's, let's account for the harm, both individual and from a nation standpoint, from a community standpoint, from a, from a people standpoint, Let's, let's account for, if we're going to reconcile something, we need to understand what we're reconciling. Now, it isn't up to the United States or New York State or, or any province or, or Canada to provide us or to, or to restore our population. That's on us. But of course, it's a little hard to restore your population. And, and we'll talk about population restoration in another context in just a moment. But, but in order to restore our population, we need to restore our identity, our lands, and our land uses. So I'm saying, rather than using the word reconciliation, which is the restoration of friendly relations on, on one definition, let's use that word restoration. Let's restore our land, our control over our lands, and our autonomy. Now I know that's that might be sound like a big ask, but how do you not ask for that? How do you not demand that? If we're going to address what residential schools did beyond what they did to individuals, beyond what they did to children. Because see that's the cop out here. The cop out here is is Canada wrote checks. They didn't do anything there was a whole list of, of, of action items that came out of the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Canada, and they haven't followed any of them. Among those action items was to try to determine the real number of Native children who died in these schools and to account for them, account for their remains. And we can debate whether those remains should be, should be interred, reinterred, and, uh, and, and returned someplace, or, but just the idea of... A, of of doing, and, and what they're using now is this ground-penetrating radar, let's force the churches who ran these schools to account for, for the deaths. 
So that's that. I mean, that didn't happen with, with the Canadian side. So we can't ignore the farce, the debacle that the Canadian Truth and Reconciliation Commission actually was as pressure will continue to mount on the United States to somehow account for, I mean, you can't reconcile this. It, it is, you know, the definition of irreconcilable differences is the one where, where they're stealing children, killing many of them, or allowing many of them to die. That's, that's irreconcilable. Now, I'm not saying that there shouldn't be some punitive assessment against the United States, or Canada for that matter, for the crimes committed against individuals. So I'm not opposed to them writing a check to the survivors or the, the descendants of survivors. I'm not opposed to that. But that doesn't fix the problem. That doesn't undo what the strategy was, which was to diminish us as a people. Because let's be honest, it was successful. Now, I mentioned I was going to talk about population. One of the things that, that I find truly disturbing is that based on the, the census that was just completed last year, or, or the 2020 census, U.S. census, they, <laughs> those, that census essentially suggests that native population has somehow restored. We've rebounded. And in fact, <laughs> it's the numbers suggest that our population has almost doubled in, in 10 years. I, I think some, something like an over an, uh, 87, almost a 90% increase in our population in a decade. And you know what? That is just bullshit. <laughs> I mean, it, it is simply impossible for that to happen. The only way that we could have had that much of a population increase is if somehow they found some place where our people have been hiding out for a, a decade or, or for, you know, for our, however many generations. And we just had this influx of native people that came from some remote island someplace that, uh, you know, that were our lost relatives. Look, the U.S. Census is, um, is, is a bit of a joke. Anybody, and, and that includes all of those who suggest their grandmothers were Cherokee princesses or whatever. Anybody can mark Native American on their, when they're filling out their census form or when they're, they're accounting, you know, if a, if a census poll, uh, um, taker came to your household. Those numbers are meaningless. And we know because of what we've experienced in some of the mascot debate, how many Native, how many people, I should say, all of a sudden claim, oh, well, I'm Native, I've got Native ancestry, and I don't have a problem being called a redskin. Yeah, we don't know, we know all of that. But, but to be clear, I believe that our population has rebounded some since the, the late 1800s, since the low point um, that was you know, really so, so violently and so um, egregiously uh, victimized by this residential school policy. I, I think there has been some rebound. But here's the problem. Part of what the, this residential school strategy was, was to drive us off of our territory. So you know, when, when we talk about um, taking children away, many of those children never went back to a native territory. You know, by, by some accounts, they, well, their family was no longer there, and maybe perhaps they passed on. 
But those those children, these residential schools essentially became these these orphanages, right? So native kids were shipped out to non-native families. So our populations on our territories, even if our overall population um, ceased to be diminished, the population of our people on our territories, and of course that that cuts both ways, because part of the reason, part of the justification for residential schools was the conditions on our territories, which was created by U.S. and Canadian policy. So you create, you know, an unlivable circumstance. And in fact, the, you know, the, the, the quote says that reservations were not a place for Native people to live. It was a place for Native people to die. And that was created. I mean, you, you, you don't just strip away our land and reduce our lands to, a, to, to an unsustainable level and, and then suggest that somehow what we are an incapable people. Now, I mean, this, this was created. Now, on that note, to revisit this notion of dehumanizing our children, and this is clear both at the state level, in New York State in particular, but at the state level and the federal level, Native children were being regarded as somehow mentally retarded. The Thomas Indian School was called the asylum. New York State had, had essentially labeled all Native children disabled, handicapped, just for being Native. So it not only was there this view that we were of diminished capacity, but that we had not that we were never going to achieve or attain a level um, of civilization or advancement that white people had. My friend Keith Burke, his book calls, uh, was titled, The Irredeemable Children. I mean, that, that's the title of, of, part of the title of his book. The Irredeemable Children of New York. That's what, what our children were being labeled as. So as much as the doctrine of Christian discovery, and, and I, I don't mean this has to be you know, a, uh, this or that. I mean, it, it's not an, uh, essentially an equivalent here. But as much as the doctrine of Christian discovery dehumanized our people so the Christian nations of Europe could claim everything from our freedom to our land, to our resources, that would, and, and that comes, and again, that comes out of the 15th century. But in the 19th century, that many years later, there is still this, I mean, this insatiable need of white folks to dehumanize us. And who are the easiest ones to dehumanize? Children. So this whole idea was to diminish our population by dehumanizing our children and, and none of this, I mean, the, these things were called schools. And look, I know you can find examples where they try to suggest, oh, this children had a, had a real learning aptitude and um, they sent them to university or whatever else. But, but by and large, children were educated here. They were sent away. They were imprisoned in these schools. And they were never, never taught anything that would allow for any real advancement. I mean, women were, 
were, girls were taught how to be housemaids. And the boys, the, the only real aptitude that they were ever taught was how to, how to take orders. So they were being groomed for the military. There were no professions being taught there. I mean, most of these children were, were forced to work fields, like field labor. Harsh conditions. And even though many of these schools produced food, the food that was provided to these children was, uh, was essentially, you know, they were malnourished. So I, I think there's, there has to be two different approaches to holding the United States and, and, and still trying to hold Canada responsible for the residential school era. Yes, by all means, let's account for as many of the atrocities that individuals experienced at, at these schools. Not just those who died. Not just those who were killed. But I think the truth has to be told about these conditions. And, and everything from, from the rapes to, the, to the, the pregnancies that were terminated or, I mean, there may be no way to account for, I mean, there's stories of, of, of these young girls being impregnated by these church officials and, and, and having babies buried. Now, whether they were stillbirths or not, you know, there's no way to, to know that now. There's talk about kids being pushed into furnaces. All of these stories need to come out. And yes, are they painful? Absolutely. I've always maintained that at a certain level, what now is being called the clergy sex abuse scandals, both with the Catholic Church and, and other churches, frankly, I think that many of these churches gained that foundation to have this level of cover-up and perversion occur within their midst because of residential schools. And, you know, that's a, that, that's a claim that I make, and, and I, I don't know that it needs to be proven out one way or the other. But clearly, and, and, and I've heard people say, well, no, the, the, the church was doing some of these atrocities back in Europe and in Ireland and that kind of stuff. No, I don't disagree with that. But you created a entire national policies in both the U.S. and Canada, and, and that would be also adopted in, uh, in New Zealand and Australia and Africa, South America, where you gave the, the churches this absolute power over children. Where the, and, and the parents of these children had no say. They, they essentially had their parental rights stripped of them. So, yeah, there are, there are two ledgers that need to be uh, created. Before we can even have a conversation about reconciliation, reconciling those ledgers, there needs to be a ledger of the atrocities. But there also has to be accounting, an accounting of the land loss, the population loss, and the, and the loss of autonomy. Look, when we talk about there being 573 federally recognized tribes in the United States, understand that when the United States says that, and they use the word tribe, 
They mean a tribe, band, or nation of Indians subordinate to the laws of the United States. And that's born out of their, again, their, their Indian Reorganization Act, their, their, this idea of defining who, who Native people were. Now, of those 573 federally recognized tribes, or whatever that number's up to now, I would dare say the overwhelming and vast majority of them never submitted to that. I mean, look, I know, I know they may take funding and they may have programs that are based on their federal recognition, but most of that 573 never asked to be recognized as a tribe, band, or nation of Indians subordinate to the laws of the United States. That recognition really came as a result of the, of the federal government, and this is true on the, on the Canadian side as well. Obviously recognizing our distinction, obviously recognizing us as nations. But on their side, again, of, this, of their ledger, they reduced us. Look, when, when they passed the 14th Amendment, which was essentially you know, one of the final nails in, uh, in, in slavery uh, in the U.S., the 14th Amendment made former slaves U.S. citizens. Of course, they wouldn't get to vote or any other stuff, but that, that's, what, that's what that was all about. But it didn't include Native people. Why? Because in that 14th Amendment, it says, it, it referred to people under U.S. jurisdiction. Well, Native people at that time still were not under the jurisdiction of, uh, of the United States. Even in those areas that the United States claims that conquered and you know, devastated Native territories, they still did not include us. Now, how do I know that? Well, you can read what the 14th Amendment says, but you also have to acknowledge that in 1924, they passed the Indian Citizenship Act, where they, where they then tried to say all Native people were U.S. citizens. They declared it. They didn't offer it to us. They just declared it. But you know what? They know that wasn't true also. How do I know that? Because 10 years later, they passed this Indian Reorganization Act, where they once again try to assert jurisdiction over Native people. And you know what? That didn't work either. How do I know that? Well, if we come to contemporary times, there is still a debate when Native people are trying to reacquire lost lands, whether it's through the, the fee-to-trust process, this process of, of land being held in trust for Native people, there is still this debate on whether Native people, and, and, and the, one of the litmus tests for reacquiring lost land is, were you under jurisdiction, uh, the jurisdiction of the United States in 1934? Well, how could they have that question when the whole process suggested that they forced that jurisdiction over us at the time? I mean, so the, the whole thing and all of this stuff takes place during that 100 years of residential schools. All of it. Inc including the 14th Amendment in, in, uh, in, in some places. Even if, the, even if the residential school policy wasn't that defined yet. This, so when I talk about 2022, I will be talking about this issue throughout the year. And more importantly, 
I'm hoping others will talk about this. We cannot have reconciliation without truth. And you can't have truth if you don't create a proper accounting of the atrocities that, committed, that were committed both to individuals and to us as a whole. And most of those atrocities are irreconcilable. So what do you do? Well, like I said, neither the United States or Canada will restore our population. That's, not, that's on us, whether we do it or not. But we need to fight for the restoration of our lands, our land use, because it's not enough for, for them to say, oh, yeah, that land is yours in this feed of trust. We're holding land for your use and enjoyment like they do on the Canadian side or on the U.S. side with all this, this, this trust land, as, it, as it's called. So we not only need to have the land restored, but we need to have control over that land. Keep in mind, the United States voted against the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples for some very specific reasons. And the, the main reason the United States voted against the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples isn't because this, this UN Declaration did wonderful things for Native people. It, it really didn't. It, it, is, it falls plenty short. But there was a sense that this declaration was turning the tables towards this idea of, um, of self-sufficiency and, and um, self-determination. And the United States says, wait a second here. We oppose the idea of Native people being, being, having their, their own self-determination restored. We don't look at self-determination in the international definition of self-determination. We, the United States, view it as it relates to Native people, Indigenous people, as internal self-determination. Yeah, let them have their little governments that, that we created for them in the Reorganization Act. Let them determine perhaps their membership as long as they aren't claiming white people, which, which is a whole other issue. Um, let them have certain controls within their territories, Un limited. But we will not recognize them as sovereigns. And we will certainly not recognize that they have the right to assert sovereignty over the lands that they are on. That's why the United States voted against the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And during the Obama administration, when Barack Obama appears to have changed the, 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 state, the United States position on the UN Declaration, let's be clear, what he said was that the United States endorses the aspirations of the agreement, whatever that's supposed to really mean, provided they don't conflict with U.S. laws. Well, therein lies the problem. So even though the United States voted against the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and then ultimately suggested they supported the aspirations, none of the nations, including the Canada, even with all their machinations over the UN Declaration, are prepared to understand that we have the right to determine our futures.
and to protect ourselves. And that in order for any policy of any of these nation states to be legitimate, that impact our lives, they must achieve, they must achieve uh, or attain or, you know, uh, you know, achieve anyway, that our consent. And it must be free, prior, and informed consent. That's not what the United States does. That's not what Canada does. They sometimes say, well, we, we've consulted. We provided uh, consultation. Um, we had, you know, open meetings and... Uh, but they never achieve consent. <clears throat> and, and it gets worse, folks, because <laughs> this year, so the same year that I'm pledging this commitment on this issue, I think it's important to realize that under UNESCO, which the United States doesn't allow UNESCO to have any impact on Native people in the United States. So it is a, UNESCO is a UN program. Through UNESCO, uh, and indigenous leaders and other world leaders, I mean, uh, as many as 50 other nations have endorsed this decade, starting this year, 2022 through 2032, as the decade of indigenous languages. The United States wouldn't sign on to that. Now think about that. The United States would not endorse a program through the United Nations to restore, acknowledge, in any way support indigenous languages at the international level. A hundred years of destroying our languages through residential schools, but the United States won't even endorse the decade of indigenous languages that the rest of the world, including UNESCO, um, ha has declared. I mean, that's the, the level, you know, and, and look, it is, it's not just hypocrisy. Many ways, this is this is like the there's almost like a vengeful nature associated with this. There's almost like a vengeance here. Nope, the United States. Nope, not not on our watch. We're not going to allow the rest of the world to do anything that supports indigenous populations. And that's the, that's the view that the United States has. A hundred years of residential schools, and they still couldn't. They still cannot, to this day, recognize the, the value of the restoration of, of, of our languages. And, and of course, I also got to mention, you know, because every time the United States does something that is remotely indigenous or wholly indigenous, like declaring November National Native American Heritage Month, the president has to roll out some code talkers. Now, how ironic is it that that the United States will roll out code talkers, which is really the epitome of exploitation of native languages without giving anything back. Militarizing our languages for their purposes, their world domination purposes, and yet they, they will not endorse the decade of, the, of indigenous languages that the rest of the world will do. And this, while You've got Mary Simon as the governor general, native person representing the queen in Canada. And you've got Deb Haaland, the interior secretary, native woman sitting in uh, as, as a cabinet member of, of this administration. So the, the biggest issue, again, just to re reiterate, the main thing that I'm hoping to do is to 
almost subvert any effort to water down uh, any kind of addressing of the residential schools. So, yes, I'm trying to build a grassroots movement, but I'm also trying to, to, you know, to pressure native governments, regardless of how assimilated they may be, to firmly address and use their resources to create that ledger of loss, of harm, of cost associated with 100 years of residential schools. So while that cost does have a, a, an individual um, accounting to it, we do need to you know, account for the atrocities that happen to individuals. But from, from a, the level of nations and, and populations, we also need to do an accounting of the strategy. Because let's not deny that residential schools had success in its intended purposes, which was to diminish us, which was to uh, impose measures intended or deliberately uh, inflict upon the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction, whole or in part. That's what residential schools were for. They committed, and you know everything from sterilization to st stealing our children to to killing members of our of our uh, uh, you know killing our family members. They did all that stuff. Committed the the bodily harm, all of that. But the goal was to inflict conditions of life calculated to bring about our physical destruction in whole or in part. So that's what I'm going to put a strong emphasis on. So you're going to hear many shows throughout the year where I come back to this theme of restoration as opposed to reconciliation. You're going to hear me present guests who are going to you know, talk about the damages that, that were incurred to not only to, a, to our family members as individuals, and I, and I don't want to, do, I do not, do not want to downplay or diminish the harms that happen to individuals. My fear is that that will be the only concentration as this effort to, to expose what residential schools are really all about. Because while our children, our family members were tortured and were killed, allowed to die, neglect, neglected, they had any number of things from sterilization to, to young girls to the rape of young girls and boys. All that stuff happened. Some of it might seem like just atrocities committed against children for no purpose. But to be clear, there was purpose. There was an objective here. And that was to inflict on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about our physical destruction. We can account for what happened to our communities. Even if it's difficult to account for all of the atrocities committed against individuals, we can account, we can do, we can look at the numbers. We can look at the land loss. We can look at how much our autonomy was diminished. The mere idea that we are standing up stronger today than we were five decades ago 
gives an indication on how badly our people were beaten down. That's how much our, our fight was diminished, our autonomy, our distinction, our sovereignty was diminished. The fact that New York State put a throughway through Seneca territory and compensated them with a pittance, $70,000 for them to run an, an interstate highway through their lands, that was done because of the weakened position that our, that our people were in. I'm not blaming the, the, those individuals who were at the table for representing the Seneca Nation. But think about the condition that they were, the, the position they were placed into. There was a, a, a genuine fear that the United States was just going to erase us. Why? Because they'd been doing it for almost 100 freaking years through residential schools. And if, look, if the rest of the world could just ignore what the United States and Canada and so many other places were doing to children, do you think they really cared if they, if they wiped us out? Look at, look at how the rest of the world turned its back on Hawaii, the kingdom of Hawaii, when the United States decided they were gonna, just going to take it. Look, I don't begrudge in the least what the generations before us had to do. I mean, the, the, the tough choices they had to make. Again, you know, in a way, I kind of laugh about the fact that, that we had, you know, people who, who carrying the titles of our clans wearing uh, Plains Indian headdresses. Yeah, it, I can poke fun of that, that a little bit. But I don't blame them. That's how much of our culture was stripped away. I mean, think about 100 years of residential schools, how many generations that is. I mean, it is incredible that we today have as much of the language that we do, as much of the culture as we do, and as much of the, the, the identity and distinction that we, that we do have. But you know what? It's a far cry from what we had prior to these residential schools. That's the reconciliation. We need a reconciliation of that ledger of loss. We cannot have restoration of friendly relations with the United States or New York State or any of the individual states or the provinces or Canada. But we can have restoration of the things that that strategy was intended to take from us. Everybody talks about restorative justice. This is one of the memes that you may have seen me post on Facebook. We all talk about restorative justice until it's time to restore the stuff they took from us. I want to thank you guys for listening. I am John Kane, and this is Let's Talk Native. We'll see you next time. Yahweh.